Guys, we're wrapping up our series called Epilogue. Epilogue, one minute after you die. And we've been talking a lot about the reality of forever. And so if you've been with us, if you maybe it's your first time today, if you can imagine with me this rope right here, and, and again, I know it goes to the corner there, but imagine this rope is your forever life. This is eternity because the Bible says that we live in eternity. We're going to live eternally. And what that means is, now don't get me wrong, don't mix that up. These bodies have an expiration date. We, we're gonna, these bodies are going to go back to the dust, but there's something inside of you, your, your being, the thing that makes you who you are, that's your soul. Your soul is going to live forever. The Bible says God has planted eternity inside of us. So whether you know it or not, you're going to live forever. Amen? And so with that in mind, this rope represents your eternal life. This spot right here, the red tape, represents your life here on earth. And so we've been talking a lot about these two. So in light of eternity, knowing that there is a place I'm going to live forever and ever and ever, that should determine how I live my life today. But not only that, the decisions I make during this portion of my life determines where I spend eternity. Whether you know it or not, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And we've been talking a lot about the two of them. And so today, we kind of bring it all to an end. And I really want to answer a question today that a lot of people are asking. One of the main questions people ask uh, all of the time as it relates to, and you've heard this phrase, end times. You know, kind of the signs of the time, the, the end times. Uh, you may have heard words like rapture. You know, when is Christ coming back? And so I want to talk about today, when is Jesus coming back? Like, when is that going to happen? Because that's a question a lot of people ask. And, and quite honestly, I'm going to be straight up with you, I don't know. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Now, don't get me wrong, there have been a few times where people have predicted that Jesus was going to come and the world was going to end. Come on, how many of you remember a little phrase called Y2K? Come on, how many of you, all the old folks just wave at me right there. Amen to young folks like, what, what, who, who? No, Y2K. You know, 1999, they said, man, it's over. Do what you're going to do. Live how you're going to live. Because, uh, you know, 12 o'clock a.m., January 1 of 2000, it's over. Computer's going to haywire. Everything's over. And it's going to collapse. How many of you woke up January 1, 20, in the year of 2000? You're like, man, I'm still here. Amen. <laughs> you're still here. Y2K proved to be false. Some of you are really young to remember this, but there was actually a guy named Edgar Wisnott. Edgar Wisnott who is actually a NASA engineer. He was also a Bible student, and he predicted that the world was going to end in 1988. Come on, somebody tell me what year it is in. He predicted the world was going to end in 1988, and so he writes this book, maybe you've heard of it before, called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. And he says, hey, this is going to happen between September 11th and September the 14th. My brother sold 4.5 million copies of this book. He had everybody in an uproar until September the 14th. 
I mean, he missed it. So what does this guy do? Certainly not discrediting him whatsoever, but what does this do? He He writes another book in 1989 called The Final Shot, and he predicted it was going to end in 1989. Some of y'all bought that book too, amen? But anyway, there's been a lot of people trying to predict when Jesus is coming back. Again, the fact of the matter, if you have someone that says to you, Jesus is coming back on this date and this time, can I just encourage you to do something? (laughs) Run, amen? Run. Nobody knows the exact time, the exact day when Jesus is coming back, but... There are signs. There are signs that you can look, and the Bible describes these indicators, these signs, if you will, that you can have a clue as to when Jesus is coming back. And so I want to talk a little bit today about these signs. But before we get into them, I want to answer another question that people oftentimes ask as it relates to the end times. And that is, why did Jesus go in the first place? I mean, Jesus came to earth, he was here, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, he resurrected from the cross, but then he goes back into heaven and he's coming back again. The question I get asked is, why did he go? Why did he go? So let me just give you three reasons today on why Jesus went back to heaven. And then we're going to look at some of these signs that we're talking about. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the first reason why Jesus went, and that was, number one, to prepare heaven for us. That's why he went. We spent a lot of time talking about this subject a couple weeks ago, to prepare heaven for us. John chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, this is Jesus talking. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that what? I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus was going to prepare a place. Can you imagine 2,000 years of preparation? You know, there's a a, a famous author and speaker, a a, a mighty, mighty woman of God. I I highly recommend you pull her story up, uh, quadriplegic, but she she has some great material uh, called Joni Eckerson. Joni Eckerson, great woman of God. Here's what she said. She said, if God created the entire world in seven days, what must heaven be like given 2,000 years of preparation? Come on, somebody. Have you ever looked around the world and saw the, the beauty and the splendor? And, I mean, listen, you don't even have to believe in God to walk outside and look and know that there is a creator somewhere. And you can imagine that seven days. Can you even fathom 2,000 years of preparation? That's what heaven will be like. So, number one, God goes. Jesus goes to prepare heaven for us. Here's the second thing of the reason why Jesus went, and that was to provide a comforter for us. To provide a comforter for us. John chapter 16, verse 7. Watch the wording here. I love the wording Jesus uses. It is best for you. Jesus says, hey, it's best for you that I go away. Why? Because if I don't, the comforter won't come. If I do, he will, for I will send him to you. Let me ask you a question. If you had the choice of the Holy Spirit living in you, the comforter, or Jesus in the flesh, which one would you choose? Most people would say, man, that's, that's pretty 
Ah, Jesus in the flesh. That's it. That can't get more awesome than that. I mean, think about it like this, guys. You're walking down the road. Jesus is with you, and you've got a headache. Yo, Jesus, headache. Boom. No headache no more. You do like me. You break your foot, and it's like Jesus broke foot. Boom. Broke foot no more. You're healed. You're walking down the road with Fido. Fido runs down the road, gets hit, killed. Jesus, Fido, boom, Fido is resurrected right there. You're also going down the road and fluffy, your cat gets hit. Jesus can perform the funeral for that cat right there in Jesus' name. I love you. I love you. Jesus in the flesh sounds like the most awesome thing ever, but Jesus says, wait a minute, it's best for you. Then I go away. Why? Because Jesus in the flesh, that's limited to physical contact. But Jesus says, hey, if I go away, I'm sending a comforter. Uh, the Spirit of God, the moment you accept Christ into your heart, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you. So now you've got a counselor, a teacher, a guide, a friend. Every single day you are living and walking in the presence of God. It could not be greater than that. Having the comfort of the Holy Spirit in you. The one who empowers you and equips you to live an extraordinary life in an ordinary world. So that's the second reason why he, he sends the comforter to us. To provide that to us. But then here's the third reason why Jesus went away. And it, it really links to the Holy Spirit in us. And that is to reach the world through us. To reach the world through us. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, Jesus is talking to the disciples here and he's kind of giving them some marching orders and he's saying, hey guys, you're going to be my witnesses to the world. And then in that moment, it says, after he said this, again, giving those orders, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. As he was going, they were looking into the sky and suddenly two men wearing white clothes stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the sky? Jesus, whom you saw taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you saw him go. So I want you to picture this. Here's the disciples. They've spent three and a half years with Jesus. They've been living with him. They've learned from him. They've experienced him. And now Jesus is going back to the Father. And they're just standing there with that gaze, that, that look in their eye. And they're watching and here's these angels, and they come, and essentially they're like, Hey, what are you staring at? He's coming back. But in between that time, there is an assignment attached to your life. There's a mission that you've got to go and do, so get on with it. And what is the mission? It's the same mission, assignment, if you will, that all of us have attached to our lives. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, what does that word say? Go, go, not stay, not just kind of sit back, but go and do what? And make disciples, make followers of Jesus, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question right here. If Jesus' ultimate goal was for us to be with him in heaven, why don't he just take us as soon as we accept him? If Jesus' goal, if that was it, for us to just be with him in heaven, why doesn't he take us the moment we accept him into our heart and our life? And quite honestly, I'm not really sure, but here's what I do know, that there's only two things that we can do here that we can't do there. 
There's two things we can do on earth that we can't do in heaven. What's the first one? The first one is sin. Come on, I mean, you can sin down here, but you can't sin in heaven. The Bible says there's no sin. No sin, the Bible says, shall enter into heaven. So pure, so holy, so no sin. Here's the second thing that we can do here that we can't do there, and that is to make disciples. To tell somebody about the love, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because everybody in heaven already knows Him. So there's two things that we can do here that we can't do there. Now let me ask you a question. Which of the two do you think Jesus left us here to do? He doesn't want us to sin. The Bible says that we are to be like Him. No sin. To be perfect like He's perfect. The second thing I think is the reason why. And that is to tell somebody about His love, His grace, His mercy. To tell somebody about Jesus. That's what we're here for. And the Bible really supports that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise to return, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. Why? He doesn't want anyone to perish, so He's given what? More time for everyone to repent. There's an assignment that's attached to our lives. And that assignment doesn't mean just sitting around, Kind of punch my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to sit back. Come on, how many of you guys remember an old singer called George Jones? Anybody remember that? Some of you like, George, who, who, whatever. So listen, look him up. There's a song that he sings that says what? I don't need your what? Rocking chair. I don't know the rest of the song, but I do remember that part. We're not meant to just sit back and glide on into heaven. There's an assignment attached to our lives, and that assignment is to go, to tell somebody about His love, His grace, His mercy, His goodness. That is the assignment attached to our lives, to go. You say, okay, Pastor, I got all that. I understand why Jesus left, but when's He coming back? Well, again, the Bible does give us some indicators on when that's going to happen. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you two indicators Two indicators of when Jesus is coming back. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, when heaven is ready. Come on. When heaven is ready. What did he say in John? He says, hey, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But John chapter 14, verse 3, again, continuing, he says, after I go and prepare a place for you, what does he say? I will come back. Jesus says, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. So when is Jesus coming back? When heaven is ready. Now, obviously, we don't know the time and the date and all of that good stuff. But again, guys, knowing that Jesus is coming back, knowing there is an eternity that awaits for us, that should change the decisions that we make right now in this portion of our life. That should change our values. That should change our beliefs. That should change our choices. That should change how we live our lives, knowing that Jesus is coming back, and there's going to be a time right here at the end of this tape where we stand before God, and we give an account of everything we've ever done, every word we've ever said, everything we give an account at this moment. Here's the sad part. I can't tell you how long this part is. Nobody can. Do you understand that this week could look totally different? 
Five of our young people could have immediately went from here to here. You never know when your number's called. Now, that's, that's not guilt. That's not trying to pressure you. That's reality. So knowing that eternity is coming, it should change my choices. It should change my value, and it should change my life. It should change the way I live. I shouldn't get so caught up into the temporary assignment, which is called earth. The Apostle Paul kind of has a lot to say about that and gives us a perspective on this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. He says, we are citizens of heaven. Come on, we're, we're not citizens of, of, of earth. We're not citizens of your job. You're, you're not citizens here. We're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Somebody said, Amen. See, some of y'all ain't dealing with what I'm dealing with. Okay. He's going to change them into glorious bodies like his, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything and everywhere. You know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, guys, be careful. Be careful. Don't get so consumed with this that you forget about this. Don't get so consumed with, with life is all about me. It's all about me, and we're going to talk about me, and we're going to live for me, and it's just all about me. Don't get so caught up in this that you forget this, because this is not our home. Earth is not our home. The Apostle Paul spent his life on mission, planting churches, telling people about Jesus, making followers of Jesus Christ, because he understood that earth is preparation for the eternity that awaits us. Paul challenged us to stop being so temporarily minded and start being more eternally minded. Don't get so caught up on, on everything that's going to happen in the here and now. You know, come on, how many of you remember when you were in grade school and somebody was talking about you? Or you're in, you know, maybe grade school slash high school and, 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 and somebody broke up with you. And you felt like it's just the end of the world. And my mind, what I'm going to do. And here you are now and it's like, thank you, Jesus, that didn't work out. So don't get so temporarily minded. There's more to life than just making it about us. So the first indicator of when Jesus will come back is really has a lot to do with preparation of heaven, which is direct, directly related to us being ready for heaven. Got to be ready for heaven. Here's the second thing I want to tell you that when Jesus is coming back, when the signs are fulfilled. When the signs are fulfilled. What are the signs that we're talking about? Remember I told you at the beginning of the message, there's, there's this phrase we hear a lot of times, it's, it's end times. A lot of people talk about end times. So what are these signs? Well, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is quite honestly a scripture you need to highlight, circle, whatever. You need to really grab hold of this scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul is having a conversation with this young preacher, Timothy. And he says, hey, Timothy, understand this. In the what? The last days. There's going to come times of difficulty. I mean, you know, we're living in difficult times right now. We're living in times like we've never experienced before in the history of the world. 
It's going to come times of difficulty. Watch what he says here. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. The word unappeasable there means that, that, that you, they're not willing to listen to reason. You can't reason with them. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. When you look at that phrase there, the original meaning of that phrase, it's almost like you're living in a fog and nobody can tell you anything. You're just all about just what's going on in your world. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Watch what it says. Having the appearance, uh, the appearance, excuse me, of godliness, but denying its power. And what does he say to them? Avoid such people. Paul is explaining to Timothy how people are going to be acting in the end times. And he says, you need to understand it's going to be really, really hard because people are going to love themselves. They're going to love money. They're going to be proud. They're going to be arrogant. And he lists 19 different characteristics of why people are going to be the way they are in the end times. And as I read this list, and as you were reading through this list with me, whether it's on the screen, on your Bibles, or on your app, you online as well, you were like, check, check, check. Know somebody like that? Whoo, mm, I'm a little bit like that myself. Check, check. You got all these checks. One by one. And Paul says, listen, in the end times, this kind of an attitude is going to be so common. And here's where it's going to get you at. Because you're thinking, okay, he's talking about people in the world. No. The people in the world have always been like that. He said, this is going to be people in the church. Because they got a form of godliness. They got a form of spirituality. But they deny the power. And so Paul is warning this pastor. He says, you need to watch out. Because people are going to be going after all of these things. And in chapter 4, he says they're going to try to find churches that will tickle their ears. They're looking for somebody to say what they want to hear. Because they're, they're not willing to listen. They're not going to put up, the scripture says, with sound doctrine. And he's warning this pastor. He's saying, you need to be careful. Because I'm not just talking about a few individuals who are going to live this way. But he's saying people in general in the church are going to be this way. And I think when you look at these 19 different characteristics. And I don't have time to go through all 19 of them today. But I think when you look at all of them. If you really want to understand the 19 different characteristics. You have to understand the first one. In the last days, the end times. There's going to be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Why is it going to be so hard for people to live out their faith? Because the vast majority of people are going to love themselves. They're not going to love God. They're going to be lovers of self. And many people are going to come in and they're going to attend church. Not because they love God, but because they love themselves. And they're hoping that God's going to do something for them. One commentator said this. Lovers of self, watch this, is the sewer pipe out of which all the other garbage flows. Lovers of self is the sewer pipe out of which all the other garbage flows. In other words, if you love yourself, of course you're going to love money. 
And you're going to start thinking, man, I love myself so much, I just want to indulge myself. I just want to buy all this and buy all that, and I want stuff for me. Why are people proud? Because they love themselves. Why are people arrogant? Why are people abusive? Because they love themselves. Think about it. When you make an abusive statement against someone else, it's not because you're thinking about that person. In that moment, you're thinking about yourself. And sometimes, have you ever said something and the things that come out of your mouth, you were just as surprised that that come out of your mouth as the person that was standing there listening to you? Why? Because in that moment, you're not thinking about anybody but yourself. Because you love yourself so much, you just want to defend yourself. You're all about making yourself look good. Because life is all about you. Lovers of self, disobedient to parents, abusive, ungrateful. He says all of this comes out of the sewer pipe of loving yourself. How many people do you know that really love themselves? Come on, don't point at them. Don't point at them, just, just kind of <laughs> do that. Come on, how many of you think, well, none of us like that, right? Amen, we, we ain't like that. But, but here's the struggle in all of this, guys, for... I think for all of us, Paul is listing the characteristics in the end times that that are so common and so popular. And somehow in our minds, I think we we struggle with this idea that if the vast majority of people is doing it, then it must be right. And I think it starts in grade school, right? Because nobody wants to be the weird kid. I mean, none of us do. And so what do we do? We just want to try to fit in. You know, we fit in with everybody, and so we, we start conforming and fitting in, and, and then it goes to junior high. And come on, how many of you know everybody's weird in junior high? Amen, everybody's weird. But then it kind of transfers into high school and then and in college, and, 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 and there's this whole idea that if everybody else is doing it, then it must be okay, and I don't think we ever grow out of that. I think it just kind of carries with us throughout our lives. And you understand he's not talking about people outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church. Can't be that bad. Everybody else is doing it. And we feel like there's actually strength in numbers, right? And so we just kind of jump in and go with the flow. But let me ask you a question. When in the history of this world has the majority been right? When? It's always been about a few individuals that were willing to stand up for what they believed in. That were willing to stand up for morals and values and willing to stand up for God. And Paul says to Timothy, hey, it's going to be a fight. Because this is the way the people, not just out in the world, but in the church are going to be acting. They're going to be all about themselves. They got a form of godliness, but they're denying the power of it. And and Jesus actually spoke about this in the book of Matthew. This is not in your notes, but Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14, it talks about, Jesus talks about this wide, massive road. And he says there's going to be all kinds of people on this road. There's many people on this road, but this road leads to what? Destruction. It leads to death. There's a lot of people on that road. But then he says, hey, there's a narrow road. And this narrow road, it leads to life. But there's a very few people that find themselves on that road. Paul says, when you see the vast majority of people in the church headed down the wide road, he says, watch out. Watch out. People that call themselves Christians, 
There's no power in them. There's no change in their lives. And Paul actually makes a very harsh statement. He says, avoid the people. Paul's saying, listen, it's going to get really, really, really difficult in the end because people are going down this road. And again, guys, I come back to this. When in history has the majority been right? Go back to the children of Israel. And, and how they were wandering around in the desert for all of those years. Why? Because the majority didn't believe. Out of the 12 spies, only two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, Man, we're more than able. Let's go. Let's conquer it. The majority said no. And as a result, most of them had to die out. What about the ark? Come on, how narrow is that road? Noah said, Hey, hundred a hundred years my brother preached the same message. Let me ask you something. Would you come here for one month if I preach the same message every Sunday? hundred years that guy said it's going to rain. Nobody believed him. And Paul says, Timothy, says to Timothy, listen, man, you're going to be tempted to go in a certain direction. You and I are going to be tempted to go in a certain direction. He says, but you, man of God, there's something different about you. Don't go down that road. Go in a different direction. Now I begin to think about, you know, lover of self. When have you ever heard anybody say that's a sin? Have you ever heard anybody say, man, lovers of self, that's, that's a sin? Have you ever heard somebody say, you know what, I'm worried I might be loving myself too much? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Matter of fact, it's something that's so common and so popular, and it's even encouraged to do that, and there's a problem with you if you don't love yourself. You know, I was thinking about a song that just kind of popped in my head the other day. And, and I was singing. I was like, well, that's, that's what it says. It's an old Whitney Houston song. Come on, how many remember Whitney Houston? It's the greatest love of all. And it's easy to achieve. What she say? Learning to. Come on, man. <laughs> Online sing it. Learning to. Love yourself. What does it say? It's the greatest love of all. It's the greatest love of all. It's easy to achieve. You got that right. But understand something. Loving yourself is not the greatest love of all. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. Than someone lay down his life for his friends. And so when you think about loving yourself, it's actually the opposite of love. God says we're to love Him the most. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, what does He say? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Every single thing about you should have this burning desire for God, not for yourself. He says, hey, you need to watch out. Because in the end times, there's going to be lovers of God, but the majority are going to love themselves. Lovers of pleasure, abusive, slanderous, all of these things. And so let me ask you a question as we kind of land the plane today, as we end this series. I you kind of look a, look a little deep today. Look in your hearts. Are you a lover of self? Or are you a lover of God? Because I've heard people say this. They, they say, yeah, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. But Pastor, I don't think I'm loving myself enough. So I'm going to just work on me. I'm going to do me. 
Like, you do you, boo, I'm going to do me. That's what people say. People say, you know, I'm feeling kind of depressed right now, so I, I must not be loving myself enough. But, but you understand the most depressed people on the planet are the most self-centered people. How many people do you know that love themselves are truly happy, truly fulfilled? And if you're not careful, you will work yourself into a depression thinking that life is all about you. I love what one commentator said. He, he, he put it this way. He says, in this universe, there's God, there are people, and there are things. And we should worship God, love people, and use things. Come on, how many of you would agree with that? Everybody say, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. We, we go along with that. He says, but if you start worshiping yourselves, here's what you're going to do. You're going to ignore God. You're going to love things. And you're going to use people. Kind of flips on you, doesn't it? There's a formula for a miserable life. The formula for a miserable life is you taking everything you've been given here and making it all about you. Now, I love me some me. I do. But I love you more than I love me. I love my wife more than I love me. I love my kids more than I love me. I love my wife so much, I'm letting her go to Disney World this week. Come on. Party at the Peacock House. Nineteen characteristics of the way people in the church are going to be acting in the end. And the first one is the pipe. It's a graphic description, right? It's, it's the sewer pipe. Everything else flows out of making this about you. Remember I told you at the beginning, there's an assignment attached to your life. There's something that God has called you to do. And, and isn't it amazing out of the billions of people in the world that God chose you? He gave you an assignment that only you can do. I can't do the assignment for you. You can't do mine. But God has chosen you to do something great with this portion of your life so that you can enjoy this portion with Him. So when is Jesus coming back? I don't know. None of us do. But I can tell you the signs surely point to Him coming soon. So here's the precious question, depressing question I should ask. Are you ready? Are you ready for that event, for that time? Are you ready for that moment when you stand before God and give an account of everything you've done and said and all of your actions? Are, are you ready for that moment? Because if not, maybe you know God set you up. And He brought you here today to let you know there's an assignment for you. For you watching online. There's an assignment for your life. There's something you can do that nobody... Think about that. Nobody can do 
what God has called you to do. Can he get somebody else to do something? Yeah, but it won't be like you do it. He's called you to do it. So how are you going to live your life? What will the epilogue of your life be? Because how we live our life here, quite frankly, determines where we live here. Regardless of what you believe, there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shine. And we've talked about both of them. But God says, hey man, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. What does he say? Here's what I want you to choose. Life. Choose life. Make it all about him and not about you. So stand with me all over the house today. Father, we thank you for moments like this where we stand in your presence and we just kind of hear from you today what you're speaking into our hearts and what you're speaking into our lives. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And Father, we, we understand, we realize that this life is not all there is. There's more to come. And so God, we... We want to make a decision today. We want to decide to resign as CEO of our lives and to allow you to come in, take full control of our hearts and our lives. And God, we give you everything we've got. In Jesus' name. Would you keep your heads bowed with me just for a moment? Maybe you're in here today. Maybe you're watching online. and You sense that tugging. You sense something inside of you, something pulling you ever so gently. Can I tell you what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. He's pulling you because He wants to connect with you. He wants to connect you with Jesus Christ. And so if you're in here today and if you, you've not made the decision to go all in, if you're watching online, if you've not made that decision to go all in and to give Him complete control of your life, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So if that describes you and you say, Pastor, that's me, man, I'm ready today. God set me up. He brought me here. There's a drawing. There's a pulling in my soul, and I'm ready to give him everything I've got. If that describes you, listen, no one's looking around. Guys, this is a moment between me and you and God, really. Could you just slip your hand and say, Pastor, that's me. I'm, I want to go all in. I want to receive him as my Savior. I'm tired of doing life on my own. Seize the hand. Seize the hand. Come on. What are you waiting for? Take the step. Say, Pastor, that's me. Now look at me. Had some hands go up. So how many of you know that's a celebration? Come on, somebody. That's celebrating right there. Listen to me, if you're online and you mean business with God, He means business with you. I know I couldn't see your hand, but if you mean business with God, we're going to pray a prayer. I want you to pray along with us. So can we just pray together? We do this as a family. When one goes in, we all go in. Come on, somebody. So let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. 
But Father, I believe you died on the cross. You rose the third day. And so, Lord, right now, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen.